Welcome to another episode in a series of conversations at the Greenhouse Gas Management Institute. This time we cover listener feedback. That's you. Hi, Michael. Welcome back. Hi, Don. Good to be back. This time we've got listener feedback. Turns out we don't have very many listeners, but the ones we have are priceless. And we've heard from a few of them. And today we're going to acknowledge and thank those people and cover a couple of the questions and comments we've received. Sound good? Sounds great. The first comes to us from Mr. Craig Pepper. Craig installed a solar PV, or photovoltaic, system on his home in Pennsylvania. Craig joined a conversation with us on the blog at the Institute website about accounting for the CO2 avoided associated with his PV installation. Subsequent to that, we got into an email conversation where he shared quite a few details about his experience. And with his permission, I'm paraphrasing what he had to say. Believe me, he was very eloquent, and I will not do him justice, but here goes. Uh, Craig installed a 20-panel system in 2010. Now, in case you don't know, each panel makes about 200 watts. So uh, since 2010, 10, his system is made 25 and a half megawatt hours to date. For those of you following along, that's just over 25 recs. Uh, and it works out to about 5 megawatt hours per year, or 5 recs per year. In the process, he avoided 14 and a quarter tons of CO2 that would have been produced if he'd used grid electricity instead. Craig goes on to say he decided not to sell the Rex, preferring instead to retain the green attributes. Besides, the Rex prices crashed, as he reports, and it wasn't uh, more important to him than uh, retaining the green attributes. Uh, he goes on to describe his satisfaction with uh, watching the meter run backwards. Now that's metaphorical now since uh, we have mostly smart meters and you don't they no longer have the wheel, but they do provide an arrow that shows you uh, which direction the electricity is flowing. And he also was quite um, satisfied by producing his own power and uh, ultimately taking an action to avoid uh, CO2 and helping uh, with this problem that we face. Craig recently sold his house with the PV system, and he goes on to say that the buyer jumped at it. Uh, the first buyer that saw it, uh, saw it jumped at it and was very happy uh, that it had a, uh, a PV system already installed. Upon hearing that, Michael, as he's prone to do, did a little research and found a uh, scientific paper which describes uh, a study that was done in the state of California of comparable homes in San Diego and Sacramento that were sold with PV systems and without PV systems. And uh, mind you, these are comparable. So three-bedroom, two-bath with a system, three-bedroom, two-bath without a system, etc. And that study showed that there is a 3.5% premium in the price of homes uh, in those areas uh, that have PV systems. We share the link to that paper in the show notes. And finally, I want to thank Mr. Craig Pepper for sharing his experience. It was very enlightening. And it illustrates, um, frankly, how smart 
our listeners are. I was delighted. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Craig. Okay, let's move on to the next listener. Mr. Kevin Olson reached out to us with an email. Uh, why don't you help us with that, Michael? Sure. Well, Kevin responded to our podcast on um, aircraft emissions and specifically the comments we had about um, the additional radiative forcing impacts um, from high altitude aircraft, jet aircraft that, you know, many of us have, or probably almost all of us have taken in the past. As we discussed on that podcast, you know, aircraft burn jet fuel, kerosene, jet kerosene that produces CO2, you know, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. Um, and, um, you know, you go from there. But in addition to that, there are other impacts and, and gases emitted by um, aircraft that uh, add to, well, add and subtract to the radiative forcing impact of aircraft that uh, makes a simple calculation of, of just, you know, CO2 and CO2 equivalent um, for those gases um, uh, not play out in the normal way of, of, from, you know, that we deal with in terms of fuel combustion here at ground level. And uh, specifically, a lot of these uh, emissions or other, other radiative forcing impacts uh, affect the amount of aerosol particulates and that w which then lead to um, uh, serious cloud formation. We've all seen the contrails that, that jets sometimes form depending on the conditions and those, those serious clouds um, right. contrails can you know reflect and absorb heat in different ways. The aerosols can create new clouds and uh, reflect and absorb heat. You know again depending on the type of particle and depend on you know other other atmospheric conditions. The uh, high temperature and pressures in a in a combustion turbine produce various nitrogen oxide emissions. Um, and at that altitude, um, both the chemistry and the makeup of the atmosphere is slightly different. And so those NOx emissions can and the, the solar radiative, uh, um, I guess, energy up at those higher uh, elevations is more potent, you know, just like you, just like you can get more easily sunburned up on the peak of a high mountain, you know, at your, if you're at 30 plus thousand feet, you know, the sun's pretty Good damn strong. <clears throat> and so that, that, that solar energy, um, uh, that extra uh, ultraviolet radi radiation and other, you know, uh, other uh, more potent, you know, uh, uh, parts of the spectrum that, that you get at those high altitudes creates, you know, potential for new chemistries that don't exist here at ground level or, or, or accelerate um, the potency of those, those, those chemical reactions. And so you get interactions between NOx, um, uh, nitrogen oxides, and, and methane, and ozone at those elevations, again, that you don't get here. All of, all of which is a complicated soup of equations, atmospheric chemistry and physics. Um, but that in some, you know, from, from the best understanding we have uh, of that chemistry, um, which is, you know, summarized in, in various um, IPCC uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change reports, um, is, a net, is a net warming. Um, uh, and by that we mean it's a net additive. Oh, hold on. Sorry, helicopter going overhead. It's okay. So all of these emissions and other impacts from clouds, you know, add together to a net warming, um, or what we say is, you know, multiplier in terms of radiative forcing. And radiative forcing is just a, you know, a measure of how much additional energy, you know, we're, we're, we're receiving from the sun 
um, due to you know some sort of uh, greenhouse gas impacts. Right. Um, and so his question um, specifically, you know, he was just questioning whether these other impacts beyond just the you know typical CO two from the fuel combustion. Um, how they could be, you know, very large, um, because a lot of these, you know, gases, especially NOx and you know, also water vapor, um, you know, don't stay around very long. You know, CO two stays in the atmosphere for for, um, you know, decades. Uh, some say thousands of years. <laughs> yeah, sort of. It, it's complex, complex um, um, kind of uh, physics behind it, um, and you know, even the cirrus clouds and aerosols and stuff like that. Uh, you know. Have a f relatively speaking, you know, short atmospheric lifetime. So, you know, we recommended a, um, or at least I should say, we didn't recommend. Uh, we we cited resources that um, you know recommended you know up to or even slightly above a doubling of the um, um, uh, meaning of radiative forcing factor that um, uh, doubles the CO two impact um, to account for these other these other um, uh, radiative forcing effects. To, to state that again, if one goes to calculate the emissions from combustion alone, uh, you come out with a result, and then you take that result and multiply it by a factor, this radiative forcing factor, uh, which, as you say, is about two uh, in often cases, uh, and use that to determine the, the CO2 impact of the uh, particular aircraft flight, right? Correct. Um, well, I got the impression when, uh, when uh, as I studied this, because uh, I inadvertently stepped into it back when I was making the calculation, should I fly or should I drive? That uh, gave rise to this whole conversation with Kevin. I got the impression that things get complicated fast. And as I dive deeper, I begin to understand that complication, and I appreciate you explaining it, but I also appreciate that there's something relatively simple at the end, which is a factor that I can use to take what I know how to do and turn it into a result that uh, I can confidently use. Exactly, and that's what this multiplier, so-called aviation multiplier, is about, is just trying to boil down these, these you know, complicated, um, you know, cur currently still being researched and, you know, debated um, atmospheric science uh, questions about higher, you know, higher altitude aircraft emissions, and boil them down into something that people can actually use when they're calculating their carbon footprint and trying to figure out, you know, how many offsets they might want to buy to 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 you know uh, offset um, their personal emissions. One of the uh, things I appreciate about this, um, Kevin shared a little bit about his background. Turns out he's an environmental engineer doing GHD reporting. So this is a practitioner, and he's working in a uh, petroleum refinery, which is very complex yeah. uh, GHG reporting environment. So this guy is doing uh, really uh, hard work, and he's a practitioner, as, as most of the people listening to this podcast would be. And so he's one of us. And uh, so it's, uh, it's great that he's bringing up this topic, and it's showing us that you know, um, things do get complicated fast. Exactly. So, you know, the decision is one option is to, you know, completely ignore these, uh, you know, non-CO2 um, effects uh, from aircraft emissions. 
and just you know effectively use a multiplier of one. The thing is, we know that's wrong. We know there are these other impacts, and we and we're pretty confident that it's a positive impact, meaning not positive in the good, but positive in in that it you know it's it's greater than one multiplier. Right. And if you know if you IPCC did a special report on this um, back in 1999, so it's getting a little dated. Um, and some of the new, you know, the new science is summarized in more recent IPCC reports, but none of those are were special reports focused just on aviation. So you kind of have to dig down into the details of each report, you know, and spread out in different sections about, you know, what what a, a new research on aviation is available, and then create your own your own kind of uh, summary analysis of that. So it, it would, it, you know, it's a it's a intensive exercise. But I think it's still, you know, reasonably reasonably valid to say, you know, we know it's greater than one, the multiplier. Um, you know, it could be up as high as three, maybe even slightly higher than that. It's, but wow. you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty. You know, it could be anywhere in between. You know, sort of, you know, one and you know, round three. And so, not surprisingly, two is a nice round, you know, relatively conservative number to to use. Um, and you know, for lack of, you know. You know, a clear answer to that. That's sort of you know how we end up at at that. You know, I guess I shouldn't say not our recommendation, but you know the recommendations of some of the you know sources we we cited. Um, for it's example. where the literature is settled, I guess. Yeah, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say as, as you found with your flight calculator uh, experience. You know, different people are using different things, so a lot of it depends on how conservative you want to you want to be um, uh, about about you know. Uh, especially when you're comparing aviation, the impact of aviation uh, emissions to other things such as driving your car instead or taking the train, right? just like you did, um, and how much you want to. Um, again, we know it's probably greater than one. Uh, so, you know, do you want to make that difference kind of uh, be more conservative about the size of that difference or, or um, conservative meaning? biased against air travel, essentially. Well, you know, it turns out that's a pretty profound decision when you start uh, talking about this little matter of using a factor of one or a factor of three or something in between, but multiplying the effects of a whole industrial sector. Yeah, and, and you know, to, to, to Kevin's original point, it's like, how does all this, how does, how does, how does something, how these short-lived gases, you know, impact the radiative forcing so strongly compared to, you know, CO2 that, you know, lasts, you know, you know, is up in the air for 100 years, let's say, because we're using 100-year GWP. And that may be slightly above my pay grade. You know, I've, I've got a background in um, atmospheric science to some degree, but it definitely wasn't the focus of my my uh, education or research work. Um, but, you know, I think it, it's partly answered by the sort of where we come up with the GWP from, from, from the get-go in that global warming potential is a function of two factors, right? Um, atmospheric lifetime is a key one, right. but also um, the radiative potential of the gas itself. So in other words, how, how good um, that gas is, uh, is absorbing um, infrared radiation. And in these cases, you know, the, these other emissions, um, the aerosols, the changing clouds, the uh, um, the NOx and its derivatives—not really NOx itself, but it, the effect it has on on methane and ozone and ozone itself, especially at that altitude, is a very potent greenhouse gas. So those are, you know, again, potent greenhouse gases that the aircraft emissions are impacting. So even though the the lifetime uh, 
lifetime of the um, gas and it's you know the indirect uh, gases it's it's affecting aircraft are affecting um, may not may not be long again the lifetime be long the the radiative potential of them is is much more powerful than co2 very good um, Kevin also goes on to ask how we feel how all of this might impact personal carbon credits and I suggest uh, given the time we leave that for a discussion for another day yeah obviously talking about um, uh, offset credits we've done we've already done plenty of bog posts and and talked about it uh, also on some podcasts, but it's probably worth the entire podcast itself. Uh, just about you know what what considerations you know any of us need to take as individuals or institutions on on whether to engage in carbon offsets. Thank you, Kevin, for reaching out. We appreciate it. You've made us smarter. Yes, thank you, Kevin. We have one more, and this one comes from Yaren Cohen or Yaren Cohen. Uh, please forgive me, Mr. Cohen, if I'm not pronouncing your first name correctly. Uh, he sent us a, a response to podcast at ghg.org. Uh, Dear Michael, my name is Yaren, and I see you probably recognize my name because I've taken several courses. I'm in the process of conducting a study on carbon management in airports, and I can say that the first chapter of my master's thesis will include an analytical part about the ways airport re- report their GHG emissions in accordance with the WRI methodology. First, Aaron, congratulations. That's a, um, uh, a noble endeavor. We look forward to the results. And uh, Yaren has, or Yaren has uh, promised to share his results when they are available. He goes on to suggest a new topic, the integration of GHG accounting and life cycle assessment. Now, this topic has come to us in several ways recently. And uh, it's got enough interest and it's got enough complexity that we'll we'll dedicate a future conversation to it. So, Mr. Cohen, please bear with us. We'll uh, get back to that uh, in short order on another podcast. Okay, well, as I said, we perhaps don't have many listeners, but the ones we've got are precious and hearing from you is wonderful. We encourage you all uh, if you have a question or comment or something you'd like to have us discuss or attempt to discuss, please uh, email us, podcast at ghgpodcast.org, or leave a comment on any of the venues where you see our blog post or podcast post. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Michael. As always, we welcome your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future conversations. Reach us at podcast at ghginstitute.org. 